0: Lord, help me, your inadequate servant, your imperfect man of God, that I may open my mouth with boldness and clarity, with Holy Spirit understanding, to explain what the Bible teaches and to apply it in a pressing, pointed, and practical way so that all of us here may trust in you, rest in you. And if there's anyone here today who does not know you, we pray today would be that day of closing with Christ and full surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to pick up this theme again. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and I chasten. What does that mean? It means that God... Singles out the church for discipline. And we see that carried out, particularly in this passage in 1 Corinthians 5, as we look there. 1 Corinthians 5, Where we're told this in verse 12, look at page 1776 again. 1 Corinthians 5.12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. How can you tell if you're being chastened by God as over against what happens with the world? I think there's a psalm that speaks eloquently to it, which we will get to in a moment. Notice again in 1 Corinthians 5, it is the responsibility of the church to purge from its midst those who persist in sin with a high hand, with arrogance, and with... Here's the $30 word that'll keep uh, church sessions out of litigation... Contumacy. Contumacy. What in the world is contumacy? Contumacy is such a big word that most people don't know what it means, but it's the one and only basis for church discipline. Think about it for a moment. Contumacy. Contumacy is an act of contempt For authority. Contempt for authority. That's contumacy. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5, you see the situation beginning in verse 1. Here is a horrible case. It reminds me a bit about the church in the 21st century in the Western world. Here is a case where what? A man has done something absolutely horrible. This isn't his mother. This is his stepmother. And he is now living in an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. And that's what he says. He says this is so bad that even pagans look down on it. But notice the attitude of the church. Verse 2, you're proud. You know, it's good to be broad-minded, isn't it? It's good to be tolerant, isn't it? Well, to a point. But they were proud of their tolerance of open Vile wickedness. A man living with his father's wife. Wow. Terrible. Awful. And they're proud about it. You know, there are denominations today that are proud of the wickedness that they tolerate. And they tolerate that wickedness not only among their members, but among their officers. Wow. Among their ordained people. We're proud. Look at us. This is what we tolerate. And wow, look at verse 2. I mean, wow. Isn't that a picture of the modern mainline denominations in America by and large? You're proud. Those mainline denominations look down on other denominations that practice some measure of discipline, particularly over their pastors and their elders, the officers of the church. And he says, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Why do you put somebody out of the church? Why would you ever do that? It's a way of saying, look, your behavior is so offensive to God that you're in danger of going to hell. Really? That's what it's about. Your behavior is so offensive to God that if you do not stop it, if you do not repent, you are in the gravest danger of going to hell. And then he tells him to put the man out of the church. Now why? I want you to see in verse 5. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature, the flesh, may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The purpose of church discipline is salvation for God's people. When a church never warns people of their sin, then that church has blood on its hands. If we tolerate open, flagrant wickedness, on and on, without the person ever repenting, there's blood on our hands. And so he says, I want you to discipline this man. I want you to remove him from your midst and turn him over to Satan. Why? Because Satan says, man, let me add him. There's one thing that Satan enjoys, chewing up people. He is like a dog that's been chained up. Chained up, chained up, never able to get loose, and sees a beautiful woman walking down the street on June the 2nd, 2020, and decides since he's not chained this morning, he's going to do what he's always wanted to do run up and bite her on the calf. And that's what happened to Sandy. (laughs) Satan is like a dog that's been chained up, and when he gets loose, he's ready to bite, he's ready to chew, he's ready to tear. And what happens is there is a restraint on Satan in terms of the people of the Lord in the church. But when the man was put out of the church, it was so that he'd be saved, not so he'd be lost. Church discipline is an act of love, not of hatred. It's an act of humility on the part of the church, not of arrogance and pride. It's the man being turned over outside of the fellowship so that Satan has a free hand and can rip him from one side to the other. And if you were to read on in 2 Corinthians, you discover that that's exactly what happened. The man got so chewed up, so bruised, so broken by the act of Satan chewing on him, working on him, that he repented of his sins. He came back hat in hand and asked to be restored to the fellowship of the church. You know, there was a man that God used powerfully in my life when I was uh, a rebel against God. He took me under wing, and my mother and father, when he realized I was a drunk, because I spent three years in high school basically being a drunk, and uh, my parents never knew I drank. And part of that was I was a master of deception. Uh, eat an onion, um, Wash your hands real well. Uh, Don't get around them. But I was brought home drunk one night. And the man that brought me home was our family doctor who was an elder in the church I was raised in. He's the man who first taught me that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And though I was in his Sunday school class, I did not know the Lord. But the night that he brought me home drunk... To my parents, he also asked my mother and father to meet him at his office early on Sunday morning, before Sunday school. And that's when he challenged us to get involved in his Thursday night Bible study. And we did. And eventually, I became a believer under his ministry. He went on and he helped to establish a church in my hometown of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And in the course of time, something happened to the man. He was a medical doctor. And he had an affair with his nurse. And what happened is, he made shipwreck of his faith and his profession. He went away from the Lord for a season. You know, you can fall away from the Lord, but if you ever have been saved, you you can never be lost. You will always come back. God will see to it. And so one Sunday morning... Long after he had divorced his wife and married his, his nurse, they ended up joining a Baptist church north uh, part of Myrtle Beach. And one Sunday morning, Dr. Ragsdale came to church, the church that he had founded, which was Faith Presbyterian, and he asked at the end of the service if he could say something. And he stood before the whole church and he said, I've sinned. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. My wife and I are established in such and such a Baptist church. And we're asking for your forgiveness. God has forgiven us. But... God wants me to ask your forgiveness because of the harm I did to so many people. God will always bring back His own. We may fall away for a season. We may fall away, but we'll never fall away completely, utterly, and totally. The person who can fall away utterly, totally, and completely, according to 1 John 2.19, they never really were saved. And so what's true in 1 Corinthians 5 is... The man was put out of the church so that his spirit would be saved on the day of Jesus Christ. And notice again in verse 13, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man from among you. And in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You know, God hasn't called me to sit in judgment of Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Donald Trump or any other political leader. God's called me to pray for them, but I'm not the one to pass judgment on them. I don't know who I'm going to see on the day of judgment, but I do know this. I am responsible as a pastor for this flock along with the other elders. And that is to try to make sure that the people of this flock follow the Lord. What happens when a person says, no, I don't want to hear you? What happens is you have to put the person out because that's contempt for the authority of Christ expressed in the authority of the church. That contempt, that attitude of contempt is what we call contumacy. Now, I want you to turn with me for a moment uh, to the prophecy of Amos. Amos chapter 3. And let's look at a couple of verses there. Amos chapter 3. And it really speaks to this situation. We'll begin there at at verse 2. Amos 3.2. And notice what he says. My hands can unstick. There we go. Page 14.22. Listen to what God says in verse 2. You only have I chosen. Do you know the word chosen is not the Hebrew word there? It's its meaning, but that's not the word. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Look at the therefore. This is just like what we read in Laodicea. Whom I love, I chasten. And so what God says to the people of Israel, He said, you only have I known. What does it mean that God knows someone? The word know in Hebrew has to do not simply with intellectual awareness of facts. You remember what Jesus says on the day of judgment to people who were never saved? I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And what God is saying in Amos 3.2 to His own people Israel, He said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now look at the therefore. He knew a lot about everybody. Is God all-knowing? Yes, He's omniscient. He knows everything about everybody in every nation. But He had a relationship with Israel. And look at the therefore. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. So God dealt differently with Israel than with the nations. Now notice something else here. Look at verse 6 when a trumpet sounds in a city do not the people tremble when disaster comes to the city to a city has not the lord caused it think of that for a moment what we're reading in Amos chapter 3 first of all god doesn't know everybody he knows about everybody but he doesn't know everybody and what the bible says in chapter 8 of romans For whom He foreknew, that is, before people were ever born, God had a relationship with them. Those whom He foreknew, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's knowledge is a relationship. You are the only nation I have a relationship with at this point in time, says God. Therefore, I'm going to punish you for all your sins. How does He do it? If we look at verse 6... We look at the second question. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And the answer in the Hebrew grammar is, of course He's caused it. I want you to understand something about America. I want you to understand something about South Louisiana. I want you to understand something about Southeast Louisiana and the course of this Hurricane Ida. Wow. When disaster comes to a place... Who is ultimately behind it? The Lord is behind it. He authorizes Satan to make a move. So I look at modern America. It gives me hope. <laughs> Why does it give me hope? Because God is obviously dealing with this nation. And how does God deal with nations? Through the events of nature. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Wow. Now turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. So what is our reaction when we discover that God is chastening us? God is chastening us. What is the difference between God's chastisement and how he deals with the world? Again, 1 Corinthians 5. What business is it of mine to judge the world? Those are outside. God takes care of Psalm 73 will answer the question how God takes care of those outside the church. Psalm 73 will also speak to you and me about how we are to respond when we understand that God is spanking us. Does God spank us? Yes, he does. If you be without chastisement, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, then you're illegitimate children and not really sons. Because what son is there whom his father does not spank? So Psalm 73. I want you to go with me back to the time of this psalm, a psalm of Asaph. And let's begin and sort of do a running commentary on page 909 and look at various verses. Psalm 73. I wonder if this is your song today. Maybe as you realize the hand of God has been chastening you, chastening me chastening us in circumstances. How do we know it's God's chastisement is over against how he deals with the world? Well, here we go. So here's the psalmist, and he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he's making this basic affirmation. It's the same affirmation that the prophet Amos makes. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'm spanking you. And here he says, the psalmist makes this confession. It's kind of like us on Sunday morning. We make confessions with our mouths, don't we? We say the Apostles' Creed. We're praying as we say it that what we say with our mouths will be true in our hearts. We sing, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. We sing all of these things and, and we pray that as we open our mouths and confess that God by the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to make the reality of what we say or sing be true in our heart of hearts. Remember, worship is essential to your life in Christ. Because without worship, what? You're like the coal that the preacher once illustrating to a man as he was visiting him and the man had stopped coming to church and he's sitting by the fireplace and suddenly the preacher takes the coal with the tongs and pulls it out and puts it on the hearth. And what happens to the coal when it's pulled out from the fire? It grows cold. Its light is extinguished. Its heat is gone. And so as we make these confessions, God reinforces in our own hearts, as we hear the voice of God's people affirming with us a confession like Psalm 73, 1. Surely God is good to Israel. But then we look around and we say, oh, why me? But as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know that crooked car dealer that's become a millionaire? Selling cars that young men raced all over Texarkana in, uh, and then lying and saying it was old, uh, owned by this lady that only drove to church and to teach school and never wear any else and put sawdust down so that couldn't hear all of the stuff that was going on. It's amazing what you can cover up. And the guy's getting richer and fatter and sassier, and, and look at him. We look at him. Why is he prosperous? So look at the politicians. How many politicians are honest? I'm sure there are a number. But the way of politics is always the way of seduction. Let me do this for you. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I look at the arrogant. I look at the wicked their prosperity. Verse 4 says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. How about that? When you're feeling run down, when you're feeling tired, and you need geritol, do they still make that stuff? You know, hatticall was invented by a man in Louisiana. It was so much alcohol in it that's why people felt better. Page page nine ten, verse five. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. That's the way it looks, doesn't it? But if you ever get underneath the surface with anybody, you discover everybody's got trouble. But that's how it looks. Look how prosperous he is. Look how well off she is. Nothing ever happens to them. Here I am struggling with cancer. Here I am struggling with heart disease. Here I'm struggling with my children and now with my grandchildren. Oh my. And look at them. Look how successful they are in life. Verse 6. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. And look at that at certain political leaders who threaten people in this country. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. Utter violation of our Bill of Rights, of our Constitution. And that's throughout the world, so many things. I think the worst and damnedest thing that government did was to stop churches from meeting. Meet with a mask, meet with social distancing, wash your hands, take care of yourself and other people, but meet, for God's sake, meet. For Christ's sake, meet. Because what happens when people don't meet? They get used to not meeting. And then they start watching on TV. I did a few of those very artificial sermons preaching to the computer screen with Sandy in the background. What happens when they're not meeting? Well, old Bob, he won't know that I didn't watch today. Because there was this golf thing on. Because there was this. We get in the habit of not meeting. That's the damnedest, most wicked thing the government has done during this. Is keeping people from meeting. They can set out things like what a building can hold and can't hold, all of those kinds of things. My father was a health officer. My father used to be able to quarantine people. Back then they quarantined people. And he had a badge, and he could do that. He could shut down a school, a hotel, a restaurant. But not allowing Christians to meet in a nation that was founded by people who essentially trusted in God... That's evil and wicked. People get out of the habit. And what happens when people protest? The response is in verse 8. Those people scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance... Isn't this a picture of modern America, verse 11? They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. We look at these folks and we say... How come they're so prosperous? How come they're so well off? How come they never get attacked by the press? How come they get away with this and their children get away with this? And all of those things. And then look at the attitude in verse 13. Is this your attitude today? Do you ever struggle with feelings like this? I can tell you sometimes these thoughts come into my mind. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Wow, you ever feel like, man, I just can't believe it. One more thing, one more thing. I can't take another thing. Why are you letting this happen to me, God? One thing after another, after another, after another. Financial difficulty, this difficulty, difficulty with health. All these things. Why? Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And what's he saying? He's saying that I have an obligation and you have an obligation to encourage one another. When we have unbelieving thoughts, when we have thoughts of despair and looking around at the world and saying, Why me? God's telling us, don't speak that way. Deal with it. Bring it to the Lord. Deal with it. What you need to do is to encourage other people. Pray about how to speak encouraging words. Words that build others up, not words that tear them down. Now look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Try to look at life and figure it out. Why is that cat getting fatter and fatter and I'm over here starving? He's eating that canned cat food and I'm only out here trying to eke out some third-rate Sam's bag of cat food? I used to have a dog. We fed him Sam's dry dog food and we kept it in the outside closet and it would get roaches in it. And I looked out one day and I saw he reminded me of eating watermelons. He would chew and spit, chew and spit. Wow. That's Sam's dry. And some people feed him steak Wow, amazing. Have you ever seen a country where their pets were so honored and the poor around them so tortured? But look at it. When I tried to understand this, verse 16, it was oppressive to me. Verse 17, why are you here today? You're here to get insight. You're here to get your heart right. You're here to deal with this business that we all struggle with in a time of... Government, who knows where the government's going with everything? Who knows what a dollar's going to be worth in five years' time? I don't know. Thymar Republic. Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their destiny. What is the sanctuary of God? It's not simply a church building. It's coming into the presence of God. Why do you have a quiet time if you have one? It's to come into the presence of God. Why do you put on decent music? To come into the presence of God. That's what you need. That's what I need. I need it daily. Don't you need it daily? We need it daily. Because the world makes no sense when we're outside the sanctuary. When we haven't come into the presence of God, we don't understand the world. We don't understand what's happening. And it seems like everything is against us when God says that all things work together for good to those who love God. Look at what he says. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Wow. Verse 18 Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Think of those verses. The difference in the way that God deals with the world and that God deals with the believers is this. God will shake you up. He will shake up anything in your life. He will shake up your health. He will shake up your finances. He will shake up your marriage. He will re- shake up relationships with other people. He'll shake anything He needs to shake up so that you'll say, Oh, God, help me, help me, help me, so that you'll come into the sanctuary and seek God's face. That's what God wants from you today, and that's what He wants from me, to seek His face. That's why we gathered here at 11 clock on Sunday mornings so that we seek God's face as a group so as we're surrounded with the brothers and sisters in Christ we're encouraged with each other and suddenly as we worship God we begin to understand the difference between God's chastisement of his own and how he deals with the world how does he deal with the world verses 18 through 20 tell us the ungodly who prosper in this world where everything seems to be fine. Who says, I don't need God. Prove to me there's a God. Only a fool says that, of course. Prove to me there's a God. God doesn't pay any attention to me, how I live or what I do. You know, the worst thing God can do to a man or a woman? Let them be. Let them be. Let them enjoy life. Let them have some money. Let them have some success. Let them have a good marriage. You know, I'm all for good marriages, but a good marriage is not the goal of everything. The goal of everything is having a good relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The worst thing that God can do to a person is to just let them enjoy life and suddenly take them right down to hell. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. When he entered the sanctuary in verse 17, and he began to understand who God is and how he deals with the world and how he deals with his own, things begin to make sense. I understand their destiny. Listen, dear ones, the worst thing that can ever happen to a Christian in this life, the worst thing, absolutely the worst thing that can happen to a Christian in this life, is better than one minute in hell. Think about it. What is hell like? Hell is walking through life. Everything is cool. Everything's copacetic. Everything's coming up roses. And all of a sudden, I'm walking down the road. I've built a new house. I've got a vacation home in the Florida Panhandle. And I've got another one in the Rocky Mountains. All of a sudden, I'm walking down the road. I'm like Nebuchadnezzar of old, who was admiring his beautiful city of Babylon. It even had designer bricks in it. They were stamped with his name. Isn't this Babylon that I've built great? And when the words are in his mouth, suddenly one of the watchers, one of the angelic watchers sent by God, strikes him and he goes nuts till seven seasons pass over him. But you know what? What? I think God loved Nebuchadnezzar. I think God sovereignly brought Nebuchadnezzar to himself in Daniel 4. But take another person. He's walking down the street. Everything's going great. He has no disease. He feels good. He's got plenty of money in the bank. He's chortling over the fate of his enemies. And all of a sudden, he has a sudden, massive, Pain in his chest, a pain such as he's never known in his whole life. He's had lead cramps occasionally, but he's never had a cramp in the heart muscle. And suddenly his heart muscle cramps, and it locks up, and it won't beat anymore. and he suddenly dies of a massive heart attack, and he wakes up in hell. The place of the outer darkness where the worm is never killed and the fire is never quenched. That's how God deals with the world. God lets the world get by with things. He sets them in verse 18, slippery ground, casts them down to ruin. They're suddenly destroyed. They're completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them in fantasies. Look at verse 21. Here you are today on the 19th day of September in the year of our Lord, 2021. And as you worship God in the sanctuary, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was as a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand, even when I have the pain of cancer, even when I have cancer in my bones, even when I have pancreatic cancer, even when I have congestive heart failure, even when I struggle for breath, even as I lie in an ICU struggling with COVID, Whatever it is in life, even when I realize I'm overdrawn at the bank and I don't know where I'm going to get the money to make it, up, make it up, no matter what's going on, I need to remember, I'm always with you, Lord. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Wow. That's what God wants from you and me this morning. He wants you to come to that place in your life where you say, Lord, take the world, but give me Jesus. Lord, whatever it is I have, whether it's my wife or children or my money, my home, my reputation, take it all, but give me Jesus. That's what He wants. And that's why he's shaping your life the way he is. He's spanking you maybe today. Maybe he's not spanking you. He just wants to get your attention. And what he wants from you today is to worship him with a good heart. What's a good heart? It's a heart that says, take it all. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us to understand life. How the rain falls on the just and the unjust. How you're kind in the general way to all people everywhere. And sometimes, Lord, your own people suffer in a way the people around them don't suffer. Simply because you're wanting us to keep coming back to you again and again and again and again. Lord, like the woman at the well, I was thirsting for things that could not satisfy. Fill my cup, Lord. Would you fill our cups this morning with your presence and power? For Jesus' sake, amen.